Hi, I'm Amanda Robson, a student journalist at Monash University. I wish to acknowledge and pay my respects to the people of the Kulin Nation and their elders, past, present and emerging, on whose land this Mojo News podcast has been recorded. It leaves you with a society that is incredibly divided, that's increasingly polarised. The two sides of the voice debate are tonight spruiking the same message, promoting the need for respectful conversations. You are listening to Constructive Conversations with Stan Grant. It's no secret so-called legacy media has seen a decline in reader, viewer and listenership in recent years. The internet has certainly muddied the waters, providing so many alternative voices to what was once a tightly controlled broadcast and publishing space. But could it be more than that? Could it be that the public is tiring of unrewarding clickbait, over-sensationalised headlines and a tabloid sway towards newstainment, rather than focusing on anything that actually matters to our day-to-day lives? The language used can feed into this. It can be fear-evoking. How many times do you hear a headline that contains the words horror or catastrophic? In this episode, Stan and I will chat about the media's approach to reporting the voice with a specific focus on tabloid media and how journalists could do better to inform rather than divide. Hi, Stan. It's great to have you join me again today. With the referendum less than three weeks away, let's jump right in and break it down in a more informative and constructive way. So how can we use the constructive approach to journalism to help drive community discussion and obtain the truth? Well, that should be what journalism does. And again, Amanda, it's it's good to be with you and good to be with everyone who's uh, listening to this. It should be what journalism does, isn't it? Um, But journalism from the very beginning has been caught between these tensions of informing and entertaining. Uh, There has always been the imperative to get as many eyeballs as possible, get as many people watching you or reading you, or if it comes to radio, listening to you as possible. And that tension between informing, carrying out what is a very sacred duty of being the fourth estate, of being the place of accountability, of the clearinghouse of ideas in a democracy, that very important duty and also the imperative of running a successful business has always been the tension. They're the the twin poles of of journalism. And how do you get that right? How do you get that, that balance between being informative but also enticing people to watch or to listen or to read. Now, a lot of that comes down to your particular market and your particular brand. Uh, Different organisations have used different methods to be able to build their successful businesses. So a New York Times, for instance, becomes a journal of record. It is the place of trust. Tabloid newspapers become the place of titillation of entertainment, of scandal, Uh, and each of them have had their own role to play in in journalism. 
while the higher end, if you want to use that term, more prestigious or sort of uh, in, in, in old language, you know, the difference between the broadsheet or the tabloid, um, those broadsheet, uh, you know, things of record, the, the ABC and others have staked their reputation on things like the integrity, honesty, responsibility. At the tabloid end of the market, it's been much more about generating that noise. The tabloids, of course, often have larger audiences and therefore can have greater influence. So I think there's always been that tension and trying to strike a balance in that tension. If you do it well, it works. And right across the board, you get a range of different opinions and voices. You get different styles and delivery of media that appeal to people in different ways. And if people are able to sample all of them or if they're able to be discerning, and we've talked about this before, then they're going to get a broader idea of their society. It can also have the other effect. It can dumb things down or it can simplify things. So, look, it's it's always attention. And if you're looking at the voice, uh, I think in this case, it is this. We've seen this play out, haven't we? We've seen increasing misinformation, or we've seen people raising incendiary ideas, or racism rearing its head and being platformed, um, and that has chipped away and eroded the quality of the discourse. And I think for constructive journalism, from my point of view anyway, it is taking those things very seriously, encouraging a space of better discourse, conversation, a foregrounding, responsible comment, truthful comment, good faith, and not being dragged into the worst elements or the worst instincts where we platform bad faith or we platform harmful, hurtful, violent ideas sometimes. And we try to be able to give the people the broadest range of views across the broadest range of media. News Corp has been pushing the idea that including a voice to parliament in the constitution is going to divide our country by race. They even labelled it as Australia's apartheid. I mean, let's talk about how destructive that type of language is to our understanding of the voice. Look, I, I, I wouldn't even necessarily use the word destructive. I think we need to interrogate these things. I mean, to some people, it, the idea of including one group of people in a referendum, or if you want to use the word race, I prefer not to because I think scientifically the idea of race is utterly discredited. It's, a, it's broadly a, a social construct. But it is real in the way that it plays out in our lives. And to many people, the idea of race is very real. It's something that they don't question. They look at somebody and they think, well, that person is of that race and that person is of that race. It's a, it's a colloquial term rather than a scientific one. So let's just accept the truth and the validity of the colloquial term in the way that it plays out in our lives. Someone may say there is a race of people here, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, who are going to be recognised in the constitution in a specific way that other people are not, and there are going to be rights 
pertaining to that group that other people don't have. Now, that may appear to be divisive to people. There is an argument for that. Um, and I think in a liberal democracy that is predicated on the rights of individuals rather than particular group rights, and that enshrining rights of groups in constitutions can appear antithetical to that idea of liberal democracy. So I'm, I'm not interested in calling things destructive. I'm interested in interrogating them, taking them seriously, and trying to ask, is that the case? Now, if we look at it closely, we realise that, first of all, if you want to use the word race, and if you want to talk about incendiary things like apartheid, and they, they are just, that's just political rhetoric. That's not what's happening. Mm -hmm. But if you want to talk about race, let's have a look at our constitution. There is still a section in our constitution, section 25, that says someone can be disqualified from voting in Australia on the basis of their race. Now, it's considered a dead letter section because there is a Racial Discrimination Act which overrides that, but that still sits in our constitution. There is also section 5126, which talks about the parliament having the ability to make laws to people of any race, and that has been applied to Aboriginal people. And we've seen that, various laws that discriminate against Aboriginal people, or sometimes maybe discriminate for Aboriginal people, specifically because of that section which is already there. So when people talk about dividing the country by race, I don't want to get into an argument about their political rhetoric of whether this is destructive language. I want to take that seriously, and I want to say, but how does that sit with the reality that our constitution was always grounded in race, where the constitution was, was written Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people would not be counted. That's what it said in the Constitution. And that was struck out in 1967. It said the Parliament did not have the power to make laws for the Aboriginal race. That was changed in 1967. And now we're asking for a change again that doesn't, in my view, does not say Aboriginal people are separate or different but it says that Aboriginal people are exceptional. And I want to use that term very specifically. Exceptional does not mean better. It means that under the law, as it pertains to all Australians, there are exceptions made for Aboriginal people. That's just a statement of fact. The parliament has the right to make laws for Aboriginal people that they don't do for others. The fact is native title exists, and it doesn't for others. So given that exceptional case, Given the history of the way race has been used politically and legally in Australia, given the fact that those things come together to create unequal outcomes, and given the fact that recognising that Aboriginal people are the first people of Australia, and that there was, with, with, uh, with the coming of the British and the establishment of Australia, that there were huge disruptions to our society that we're still recovering from, then there is an argument within liberal democracy, if liberal democracy is about accountability and true representation, that Aboriginal people should be acknowledged and represented in that exceptional way. And again, don't use the word exceptional to be better or separate. It is a statement of our relationship to the laws of the land and the way in which Parliament can make laws for us. So, constructive journalism, from my point of view, 
is not using the language of destructive. It's taking things seriously and then being able to examine them in the light of history and fact and making your case and then people will make their own decision about that. Now, I don't think the media has done that. And I think part of the problem with the voice debate is it's been captured by political rhetoric, by people using incendiary terms like divisive, like apartheid, and that distracts us from the real substantive conversation. People need to be aware of Aboriginal people's relationship to the laws and politics of the land and our relationship to the constitution. And then you look at the way those things are dealt with in other countries and ask where Australian liberal democracy can deliver on better outcomes for all of us, which also creates, in my view, a stronger liberal democracy, not a weaker one. You use the word exceptional, and this is the first time I've heard the word exceptional being used like that. When we absorb the news, whether that be online or via mainstream media, we are confronted with words that induce anxiety and fear. Words like horror and gruesome often lead the headlines. I mean, I was just pulling examples from this week alone, and I was faced with backflips and plunges and U-turns, nail in the (laughs) coffin, all in regards to the voice debate. Yeah, well, that's advertising. That goes back to my first point of the tension between entertainment and information. They are banner headlines. They're headlines that scream at you. They're headlines that evoke an emotional response. The media works around the amygdala, and the amygdala is that part of our brain that responds to a fight-or-flight mechanism, and it can be very pronounced in us depending on our circumstances. All advertising plays on a fight-and-flight response. It's either trying to attract you or scare you or make you anxious, but it's trying to get your attention and evoke an emotional response. And that's what we're seeing with that language. That's not language of democracy or or information. That's language of advertising. That's trying to get people to watch and listen. If I yell fire at you, you're going to look up. You know, that's what that's for. Um, And think about journalism. I mean, I've grown increasingly tired of this because I think the public is tired of it. But the way that we don't have somebody, if a politician criticizes another politician, the media will say they have attacked them. If a politician, on the basis of evidence and fact, which we should all do, um, changes their mind, they say they backflipped. They're a flip-flopper. How can you trust this person? That's what we do. We, we take those things and we filter them through the sort of, you know, the worst of our, our media, the worst of our instincts to, to get that emotional response. And I think I think that's what people are getting tired of. And that's what people are turning away from. You can only yell fire so often. Um, and I, if you look at declining numbers of readers and listeners and viewers, clearly people are getting tired of this and they're looking for somewhere else to go. But that's not to um, underestimate the the, the impact of that sort of language. It is it is part of journalistic speech, it's journalese. And we use that because it has worked in the past and it does get attention, but it doesn't increase better conversation and discussion. Now, personally, that's what I'm really tired of and I don't want to do that. And so I'll, I choose 
things like this, to have these conversations or to write or to give speeches or to put myself in an environment where I'm not going to be determined by the worst of the medium that I'm speaking to, but to try to connect directly with people. And I think that comes down to the tone of your voice, um, how you soften the space rather than stiffen the space, how you try to breathe air into a room rather than suck the air out of it, and to try to engage around ideas. That's what I want to do. And I think increasingly that's what people are looking for, but we do know the impact that that sort of heated political rhetoric can have. And if you want to talk about things that have been divisive in a society, it has been that heightened political and, and, and media polarization that is creating what we've seen as a decline in our democracies all around the world over the past decade and so on. So we have a role to play and we see the outcome of this in that erosion of democracy. But what you're talking about when you talk about those words is you're talking about the advertising, the entertainment of media, and not the information of media. A truck driver's mistake has unleashed a nightmare on our roads. Flames lit up the night sky in Canterbury, an inferno completely destroying a factory. The hyperbole used is quite distressing. And when I read these articles, it doesn't yeah. make me feel good. There's this yeah. sense that whenever you read something or whenever you're listening to something, words like skyrockets, when you're talking yeah. about petrol prices. The price of petrol skyrockets to record highs. The hyperbole is there and it grabs your attention. Yeah, it does. And it's designed to do that. What you as a consumer of news need to understand, I think, is your response to that and why it triggers that response. And if you find that distressing, um, you can always turn it off. You know, I always say to people, you know, go for a walk. Turn the media off for a while. I do. I don't watch a lot of television news anymore at all because it doesn't do anything for my life. I seek out other things. I read, think, um, listen to people that I respect. Um, not always people who agree with me. Far from it. I don't want to hear people who only agree with me. But I do want to go to people who disagree with me with respect, and that's really important. But, you know, I would say, Amanda, if you find it distressing, turn it off. You don't have to engage with it. Is it bringing something constructive into your life, or is it making you feel more anxious and fearful? That's what it's designed to do. Understand that. That's what the media is designed to do is to create that emotional response in you. Turn it off, go for a walk, read other things, think about other things, and then when you come back to it, you come back to it breathing more deeply. Just lower the tone. You don't have to engage with it just because it is there. Constructive journalism, do you reckon it's the antidote to tabloid media? I mean, only late last week did Rupert Murdoch step down as chairman and passed control to his son. The great media barons deciding to pass on the baton. I mean, his legacy from interfering with the transfer of power in the USA, from the closing of the news of the world in the UK. Do you reckon constructive journalism can be the antidote to that tabloid media? I don't know if I'd use the word antidote. I, I, I think... 
it it is an option to these things. I believe in a more constructive approach because I see the damage that's done to our society. But let's not forget, um, there is some great work done in Murdoch Media. Some of the people that I read uh, widely uh, and deeply are in the Murdoch Media. I respect people who work in Murdoch Media. There are some great journalists who've done some phenomenal, phenomenal work. And they continue to do that work. I think there's always a danger in simplifying these things and saying, this is the Murdoch media. It is very broad. It covers many things from publishing to television, um, newspapers, um, podcasting. There are so many aspects to Murdoch media. And it's contributed in many cases to greater accountability. Um, it has it is, uh, contributed to our democracy, and it's also been incredibly successful. I mean, there is a reason that it is a, a media, a global media conglomerate, and that it is very, very successful and built off the back of a lot of very good work from people. But there are also, as a sign of the times, increasing polarisation, uh, and the Murdoch media has been very robust in the way that it engages in that polarised environment through things like Fox News or in Australia Sky News, but that's that's what we have in a, in, in you know society that has free speech. We have that. There's nothing illegal in that. That is what they are there to do. Mm-hmm. Um, I recognise that, and I say to people: be more discerning. Think about what you what you want to bring to your world. Um, and the Murdoch media, of course, whether you're at Box or Sky or whatever, would say that, well, we're committed to amplifying this particular voice or these ideas that maybe aren't amplified or given platform on places like the ABC. And yeah, the ABC chooses who it puts on as well. And I know from having worked there that there are inherent um, perspectives. And if you want to use the word biases, some do. Um, there are inherent cultures at the ABC that lean to a particular worldview, um, and then there is the media, the Murdoch media. Now, at its worst, and I've experienced some of the worst of it, I think there is a toxicity to some of the worst of what we see in Murdoch media. Um, but that's not all of it, and I think we just, you know, if I'm talking about constructive journalism, I'm talking about seeing things in their totality and their entirety, accepting the benefits of free speech and the inherent costs of free speech, but also being vigilant about where I think that crosses the line. And there are examples, I think, that do cross that line and become toxic and incendiary and hurtful and harmful. And I think we've seen at its worst elements of that as well. But I like to look at things in their entirety rather than simplifying things or just branding things, because then we fall into what we believe uh, the people that we disagree with do to us. And you can become the person that you disagree with very easily when you apply the same methods. I don't believe in objectivity. I believe in fair and balanced reporting, but objectivity means that you don't influence anything. And I think we influence 
by choosing what we cover, who we talk to, what questions we ask, and what the angle of your story is. That was Catherine Gildedstead speaking on why we need constructive elements in our news reporting. As media, what can we do to ensure that we separate that idea of media that informs versus media that divides? Well, you don't have to listen or watch. This is the first thing, okay? Know who you are. Know what your core beliefs are. Think, read, challenge those beliefs. Um, Listen, watch, be really discerning be engaged in the way that you participate in that space, but also understand that it doesn't have to be 24-7. There's a sky to look at. There's an ocean to swim in. There's a river to fish in. There are books to read. There are walks to take. There are movies to watch. There are meals to be had. There are friends to sit with. There's family to love. You know, why do we think that the media has to be front and center in everything that we do. Just take a breath, see it for what it is, dial down the noise, think for yourself, read and 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 engage and watch and listen to the media with that discernment. And, and don't allow this to drown out everything else. You know, there is a tendency because of what you know you started today talking about the language of media and that that tension between, as I raised, entertainment or information. And there is a tendency, if you just are constantly brought up in the noise of the media, to believe that everything is catastrophic. And that's what the media wants us to believe. And even the, you know, the, what we may see is that as the more sort of responsible end or, or more highbrow end is also guilty of that in its own way. Um, the stories it chooses, what it what it chooses to focus on, what issues it chooses. Um, you would think the world is catastrophic. And yet, most of us navigate the world every day alongside people of great difference, different languages, cultures, nationalities, races, ethnicities. Um, we live in a crowded space. We live in an incredibly connected space. And most of us navigate that incredibly successfully with generosity and kindness every day in our lives. And we don't get that if we just are constantly consumed by the noise media, which wants to tell us everything is catastrophic. So step back sometimes and dial it down and realize you don't have to be caught up in that endless media noise that can drown out everything else. Before we finish up today, Stan, do you want to... Give us an idea, maybe elaborate on how we can talk about the voice constructively when we've got less than three weeks to vote. Look, it is it is very difficult, I think, in any political campaign to be able to, to talk about things in a constructive way because politics is a blood sport. It's a winner takes all. There'll be a yes or there'll be a no. You go to a federal election or a state election and there will be someone standing on the dais at the end of the night, standing there at the the podium with their arms raised in victory and the others in defeat. It's a blood sport. And once you're into the political campaigning, it's very difficult to be able to have those conversations. 
I think part of democracy and the most important part of democracy is preparing us for those moments. These are the conversations we should have always been having, and we haven't. I think culture matters more than politics. I think culture beats politics every single day. Culture informs the way we meet each other. Who are we as a nation? I've been in Europe and I'm still here. I'm in France right now, which is going through its own turmoil. What does it mean to be French? What does it mean to be a pluralist, multicultural society? Britain is now questioning the values of multiculturalism. I've seen the latest statements from the government there. Um, immigration is a flashpoint issue right across Europe as people struggle to be able to live together. Culture is really important, and that defines a lot of our politics. I think there is so much work that's done at a cultural level through the transmission of stories to art and, and movies and books and sport and the ways that we engage with each other creates a culture that informs our politics. I think a lot of the work has to be done before we get to this point. And I fear in the height of political campaigning, we are captured by the blood sport of it all and the imperative for someone to win. And that can that can impede the sort of conversation that we need to have. And I think one of the things I've observed afar watching the voice debate, um, and now we're entering into the last few weeks, is how culturally we were so ill-prepared for the moment. Um, the truths about history, the big historical discussions we need to have, the discussions about our constitution we haven't had, the discussion about exceptionalism that we haven't had, the word that you said you hadn't even heard before in this debate. We didn't prepare that ground. Some had tried. We've, there's certainly been a lot of information out there around this. But as a nation, I don't know that we had been prepared for this culturally in a way that would have ensured the sort of depth of conversation that we should have been having. And that's when we see the worst instincts, the rhetoric, the use of language like divisive or apartheid. I saw someone invoke war the other day. I mean, I've covered war. And I think whenever I see people use that word, it offends me because I know the cost of war. And I know the Aboriginal struggle in Australia has been a peaceful one. But this is the sort of political rhetoric that we have in our world that emerges from the heat of political battle when it is not supported by the cultural strength that democracies need. If democracies don't emerge out of a strong idea of who they are culturally, I think we can be captured by the worst of the political debate. Uh, and I think at its worst, we've seen that in the voice. But let's not forget as well, Amanda, again, I would say to people, there are great things. I've read some wonderful things written during the voice discussion. I've heard points of view that have challenged my own. I've had to work through. Um, I've I've seen some great work done. That shouldn't be lost either when we're caught up in the worst of the political blood sport. Thank you, Stan. Thank you for joining me from France. I know it's early in the morning for you. That's a pleasure. So I hope you have a great day and we'll chat again next week. We will. Thanks, Amanda. 
Next week on Constructive Conversations with Stan Grant, Stan and I will take a look at the referendum through a global lens. How does what's happening here in Australia impact or strengthen other democracies? Australians, we get to decide whether our constitution is changed on October 14. If you can't make it to a polling booth on that day, it is worth knowing that early voting is officially open. You can find your closest early voting centre on the AEC website. Constructive Conversations with Stan Grant was research edited and presented by me, Amanda Robson. The artwork was created by Sabrina Toe. Alicia McMillan is my executive producer. And a special thanks to Stan Grant, the Monash Media Lab and the School of Media, Film and Journalism here at Monash.